Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forms podcast. I'm Eli Koaz. And I'm Evan Gottesman. Today we're looking at Jerusalem, particularly the city's predominantly Arab-Palestinian eastern sections. These are the areas that Israel took over from Jordanian occupation in 1967 and formally annexed back in 1980. Beyond the diplomatic and political sensitivity associated with East Jerusalem, those neighborhoods present a serious public policy problem. They lag pretty far behind the western, mainly Jewish section of the city, which has been under Israeli control from the state's establishment. So back in early May, the Israeli cabinet approved a 2 billion shekel, which is about $560 million. They approved a development plan for East Jerusalem. Now the program deals with infrastructure, public health, and education. So to help us understand this plan, the motivations behind it, its potential, and so on, we're joined by Lior Shilat. Now, Lior has the honor of being the first return guest to the podcast. Uh, He is the Director General of the Jerusalem Center for Policy Research, which is a Jerusalem-based think tank founded in 1978, focusing on the unique challenges of today's Jerusalem. He previously served uh, as an advisor to uh, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, among many other things. Lior, thank you for being back. Oh, thank you, guys. It's great to be here again. So a lot of politicians like to talk about the idea of a united Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, Meuchedet, but that doesn't, really, that doesn't really feel like the reality, especially when you hear, uh, and most Israelis believe, that it's a divided city between East and West, and maybe more so between Arab and uh, Jewish. So can you just give us a background and talk to us about how those divides play out? Of course. So, uh, first of all, let, let's go a little bit uh, back in history and trying to understand what is East Jerusalem. Evan mentioned before that East Jerusalem is basically the term that is being used to describe the area that was annexed to Israel after the Six Day War in uh, June of 1967. But it is important to understand that this area is much larger than what was Jerusalem between 1948 and 1967, what we call Jordanian Jerusalem. Jordanian Jerusalem was the part that was occupied by Jordan during the war of 1948, and that was an area of approximately two and a half square miles, basically the area north and south of the old city of Jerusalem and the the old city itself. In 1967, when Israel decided to annex Jerusalem, Jordanian Jerusalem, into the Israeli Jerusalem, the decision was made not to annex only these two and a half square miles, but actually to annex a much wider strip that goes south, east, and north of West Jerusalem, the Jerusalem, the Israeli Jerusalem of before 67 in order to include all the hills and mountains that were surrounding West Jerusalem and had a Jordanian outpost on them. So if you can imagine West Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains and on those top hilltops there were Jordanian uh, outposts that were in a sense threatening the city and the decision that was made in 1967 was to annex all this line of, of, uh, of hills surrounding the city. In addition, the government decided to annex to the municipal uh, area of Jerusalem also the Kalandia Airport, which is quite north uh, of the city. So if you will ever see the map of Jerusalem, you'll see there is some kind of a finger going up north 
and that finger included that, that airport of Kalandia or Atarot, as it's called, as it's called in Hebrew. The bottom line was that instead of annexing two and a half square kilometers, uh, square miles, sorry, the government of Israel decided in 1967 to annex 27 and a half square miles. And in those 27 and a half square miles, you had uh, the the old Jordanian or the Jordanian, uh, the old city and the Jordanian Jerusalem, but you had also an extra 28 towns and villages that were not part of Jerusalem at that, until that moment, and by the annexation became the city of Jerusalem, became neighborhoods of the city of Jerusalem. Today, in those uh, neighborhoods and the villages, there is a population of more than 330,000 Muslims and Christians that define themselves as Arabs, uh, and they are something like 38% of the total population of Jerusalem. Just to give you some numbers to understand in Israeli terms, the, these numbers of, of more than 330,000 Arabs in Jerusalem is a, is approximate almost 20% of the total Arab population of Israel. In fact, if tomorrow morning the Arabs of Jerusalem would have been a separate city, they would be the third largest city in Israel, bigger than Haifa, second only to Jerusalem, let's say Jewish Jerusalem, and to Tel Aviv. In fact, Jerusalem Arab population is so bigger than any other Arab city in Jerusalem that the second largest Arab city in Israel, Nazareth, can fit with 75,000 people, can fit four times within the Arab population of Jerusalem. So we're really talking about a big Arab population in the city. But the people, the people in Nazareth are Israeli citizens, and we know that the uh, people in the Arabs in East Jerusalem. Um, have a uh, different status from both the uh, Arab Israelis and from Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. Can you explain uh, that status um, a little for our listeners and how it impacts daily life and uh, municipal politics in uh, Jerusalem? Okay, so again, it goes back to this government decision that was made in the end of, uh, of June 1967, and, and we just recently, in, in the Jerusalem Institute, published a, a book about that uh, decision. Uh, so in that decision, the government decided not to automatically give the Israeli citizenship to the to the residents of those 28 villages surrounding Jordanian Jerusalem and Jordanian Jerusalem, but to give them a status that is called residency. What is residency? Residency is more or less the equivalent of what in the U.S. would be the rights of a green card holder. You can you enjoy most of the civil rights that that the citizen have. You can vote to the municipality, but you're not allowed to vote to the parliament to the Knesset. And unlike citizenship, residency can be evoked, and that's clearly a very, very important difference. What happened, what the government expected in 67 was that gradually the residents of East Jerusalem would choose to, to adopt the Israeli citizenship, will apply to get the Israeli citizenship, and in a process that would take uh, so many years, uh, they would become Israeli citizenship. In fact, the uh, East Jerusalemites, this new status of, of uh, people 
decided to adopt this residency because for them it was easier. It allowed them to keep their Jordanian citizenship and be part of the of their brothers in the West Bank on one hand, but enjoy the social benefits that you get when you are a resident of Israel. In fact, today, out of the 330,000 Arabs in Jerusalem, only 25,000 more or less are holding Israeli citizenship, while the rest of the 305,000 are only residents. So we're going to return to that problem in a little bit, but cycling back to um, what we started off talking about, this development plan for East Jerusalem, um, that's going to be dealing with uh, instituting Israeli school curricula, unifying the public transportation with the western part of the city, uh, building up the public health infrastructure. Um, do you think this plan can really improve the situation for those people who were talking about in East Jerusalem? And if so, how? And if not, uh, why not? Well, the bottom line answer is absolutely yes. First of all, we're talking about quite a historic uh, government decision. You need to understand that since 1967, for 50 years, Israel or the Israeli government almost didn't uh, receive any uh, approved, sorry, any government decision that is specific for East Jerusalem. There were few government decisions that have to do with security in East Jerusalem, few that had to do with, with the environment in East Jerusalem, but there was never a comprehensive governmental plan that had to do with economic development and had nothing to do with security issues. And the first time it happened was, in, as, as Eli mentioned before, was early in, uh, in, in May when the government decision uh, was perceived was uh, decided by uh, by the government in uh, Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. What's the reason for that? Is it just because that they figured that Jerusalem would eventually be be split? Like, how did they put that off for for so long? Well, I think that there are many reasons for for that. Uh, you're asking a very good question. The way I see it is that it's it's for few reasons. First. Until 1993, the government didn't invest in general in, in developing area or in periphery in Israel in general. And the idea was that the same government measures that are being taken uh, all over the country are, are also in, in Jerusalem and that the Arab population of Jerusalem would enjoy the general investment that is done in the city. In 1993, when the Oslo Accord uh, was signed with the PLO, then the whole policy was to put everything that has to do in East Jerusalem on hold. Meaning the government said to itself, okay, we decided, as you know, in 1993 in the Oslo Accord, it was decided that the whole issue of Jerusalem would be discussed once more in the year 2000 when the permanent agreement would be discussed. So I guess that psychologically, people that had to do with Jerusalem said, listen, why should we invest now in East Jerusalem when in 2000 we're going to discuss and probably some of the neighborhoods of East Jerusalem will not even be Jerusalem anymore. And for that, for seven years, the investment in East Jerusalem was, I will not say minimal, but anyway, the approach was that this is a, some kind of a question area and we should not invest in it anymore. And this policy continued on and on when during the years of clearly the Second Intifada, and then after the Second Intifada, the Annapolis Accord, and, and the negotiation that was run by, by Secretary of State uh, Kerry in the last few years. 
This government is actually the first government since 1993 that has a very clear ideology, a very clear message that is saying we are not negotiating Jerusalem. In a sense, it's the first government in, in Israel since 1993 that has a very clear ideology of united and undivided Jerusalem. And I think that the reason that the government made this decision recently was because the government understands that you cannot, on one hand, hold the flag of the United Jerusalem, and on the other hand, live in a situation in which 38% of the people of Jerusalem are living in deep poverty. We're talking about in, in East Jerusalem, the poverty level is that 75% of the, of the people are living below the Israeli poverty line, meaning three out of every four people live below Israeli poverty line, which of course is a disgrace and something that the government of Israel cannot accept. The second reason is of course what I mentioned before, which is the civil status uh, running a city in which almost 40% of the population enjoy a completely different civic status than the other 62% is not something that is, is viable if you hold the, the strategy or the ideology that the city should be united. Therefore, the government uh, arrived to, to the conclusion that a major economic investment in East Jerusalem is a necessity. So uh, maybe let's talk a bit more about the actual plan. We talked about, Evan mentioned uh, uh, implementing uh, Israeli school curricula, unifying uh, public transportation, public health infrastructure. Uh, I know another big thing is uh, legalizing kind of land ownership because there's no way to have a mortgage in East Jerusalem. So can, can we talk a bit more about the substance so in order to understand the plan, we need to understand the challenges that East Jerusalem is facing. We, we are doing here in the Jerusalem Institute quite a lot of work on these challenges, and I'll try to map them into five different challenges. The, challenge, the, the number one challenge in East Jerusalem is clearly poverty, and I spoke about it before. I mentioned the number of, of 75%. The reason that uh, this poverty is coming out for, we can do a very long analysis of what happened in, in East Jerusalem in the last few years, but let's, I'll, I'll just give you two, two, the two major reasons. Reason number one is the problem of low participation rate among Arab women in East Jerusalem. We're talking about the fact that only 22% of the women in East Jerusalem are part of the labor force, meaning 78% do not even try to acquire a job, not to mention have a job, and only 22% are either employed or unemployed by seeking for a job, and clearly when you add that to the fact that East Jerusalem is, has quite a lot of uh, children, big families, then the, those figures that I gave before about poverty in East Jerusalem is, is much clearer. The second problem is that in 2004, 2005, when Israel built the security barrier between East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank, basically cut off Jerusalem, Arab Jerusalem, from its interland, from its metropolitan area in Ramallah, in Abu Dis, in El Azariah, in Bethlehem, the surrounding towns and cities around the East Jerusalem. So if Jerusalem used to be, Arab Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, used to be in the past some kind of a metropolitan center for the West Bank, since 2004, all of a sudden got disconnected. And that clearly also had effect 
on the economy of East Jerusalem. So that clearly economy and, and poverty is the number one challenge of East Jerusalem. The second challenge is the unique civil status. We already spoke about it before, the difference between residency and, and citizenship. A third one has to do with the land settlement, and, and you explain it very well. What happened was that in, in 1948, when Jordan and Israel divided the city of Jerusalem between them, they inherited a city that did not have any kind of a land settlement. And they all start, each, each country started in its own part of the city during the land settlement. But in 1967, when Israel took over its Jerusalem, the Jordanian did not finish the land settlement. The meaning of, and, and Israel decided to freeze the land settlement and not continue the Jordanian for many kind of political reasons. One of them is the fact that the Jordanian refused to cooperate. The meaning of not having a land settlement is that people cannot take a mortgage. And as every economist will tell you, the easiest way to get a credit today is by, by taking a mortgage and using, and using your home as a, as a safety for the, for the, for the mortgage, the collateral. Now, imagine the fact that we did a research here to try and evaluate the, the amount of money that is being lost every year because of the lack of the land settlement. Meaning we, we calculated the delta between the credit that people are getting today in East Jerusalem and the credit that they could have if they could have taken a mortgage. And we, uh, this, and we understood, imagine that, one billion shekel are lost every year to the citizens of East Jerusalem just for the fact that they cannot take a mortgage. Add to that another more than half a billion shekel that the municipality of Jerusalem and the government of Israel are losing in taxes every year because of this phenomenon of, of lack of land settlement. And you understand why this is a really a major challenge for East Jerusalem. Another major challenge for East Jerusalem has to do with the hydropal trade. We're talking about numbers that it's very hard to evaluate, but something between 30 and 40 percent of high school graduates do not graduate high school, sorry, of high school students do not graduate a high school for many reasons. One of them is that they don't really understand what benefit do they get from finishing high school when they can actually acquire a job when they're already 15. That's a problem that is mainly uh, typically for the men in, uh, in East Jerusalem. And the last, uh, the last uh, challenge that, that I would mention would be the uh, poor infrastructure. If you ever visited uh, Jerusalem and went from a neighborhood in the west side of the city to an Arab neighborhood in the east side of the city, you can immediately notice this infrastructure gap that has to do between the two parts of the cities. We can explain, many, there are many reasons why this uh, infrastructure gap uh, exists, but the bottom line is that the roads, the, the uh, playgrounds, the level of public housing and the level of uh, the sewer system and clearly other uh, infrastructure issues are not the same level between East and West. So the government decision tried to face all those five challenges and some other minor challenges that the, the city is facing and or the, the East part of the city is, is facing and they did it with few measures that the government can do. The first thing is that they put a very big emphasis on the question of employment and within employment, a very big emphasis on the question of women employment. They understood that, the, the, let's say, the, the gate to economic prosperity in Jerusalem is, first of all, hiring 
the uh, the participation rate among the among the Arab women, and there are many many policy tools that are being used by the government in order to to do that. Uh, the second the second policy tool that is being used by the government in this uh, government decision has to do with uh, assistance to small businesses and trying to encourage SMEs, small and medium businesses, to uh, to flourish and to to get uh, easy access to credit. Then the government is trying to tackle the question of, of uh, land settlement that we mentioned before, and they put a very ambitious uh, ambitious uh, target that after 50 years of completely neglecting the issue of land settlement, they want that by the end of 2000, uh, sorry, by the end of 2021, to have 50% of the land settlement in East Jerusalem done, and by the end of 2025 to finish all the land settlement in the in the city. A, another policy package that was done by the government had to do with education. You mentioned before the Israeli curriculum, but I think the more important thing is not the Israeli curriculum, but uh, encouraging the Hebrew language. Most of the uh, most of the East Jerusalemites are studying with the Palestinian curriculum. Uh, and one of the problems with that is that they have very weak or non-existent Hebrew when they finish high school. Now, since what can we do? Most of the attractive uh, job places in Jerusalem are today in West Jerusalem. Hebrew is a requirement that you have to, to have when you apply for a job. So the government is putting a very big emphasis on teaching Hebrew in East Jerusalem. Uh, they're also investing in informal education and in technology studies. And as you mentioned before, in some of the schools also in uh, the Israeli curriculum. So that has to do with education. There is a, there is a policy tool with higher education trying to create a, a preparatory school Mechina, as they call it in Hebrew, in order to help uh, students that finish the Tawji, the Palestinian uh, matriculation exam, to be accepted to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and other colleges and universities in the west side of the city. There are a very big in, uh, infrastructure investment in the field of transportation. We're talking about a half a billion shekel investment in roads. In, uh, in this city. There is also a big investment in public transportation in East Jerusalem, and there is a, also a, a big investment in the development of sports facilities, parks, and playgrounds. All in all, the government decision is, well, the numbers are between one and a half to two billion shekel over five years, trying to tackle those challenges that I mentioned before. So, so another challenge that the plan might not necessarily deal with directly is the challenge of uh, political participation from East Jerusalem Palestinians, the political representation. Um, there's the tradition of Palestinian uh, East Jerusalemites not voting in municipal elections. I think back in 2008, the voter, particip voter participation rate among East Jerusalem Palestinians was somewhere like 1.8%. It was le less than 2%, um, but 60% of East Jerusalem Palestinians think they should be voting. There's just an official boycott. Um, given all the sensitivities, the historic uh, community-wide rejection of Israeli initiatives of the municipal elections, how do you think uh, Palestinian East Jerusalemites are going to receive this plan? Are they going to be receptive to this initiative? Will they uh, be cooperative or, or is it perceived as 
Israeli expansionism into uh, what they think should be their capital city and is part of their historic territory? So the biggest criticism that uh, the, the government decision perceived till now was the fact that it was done by bureaucrats in the government agencies and without the involvement of East Jerusalem. Now, clearly there were many discussions about the program with East Jerusalem, but the program itself was designed, as I mentioned, by the bureaucrats. And Clearly, that's that's one of the weak points of, of the program. We had few conversations with, with the relevant clerks in the Israeli government, and they completely understand the, the challenge that uh, implementing the program, the, this uh, governmental uh, program, is bringing. And it would be very very interesting to see how are they planning to involve the residents of East Jerusalem in the implementation of this, uh, this program. Clearly, I think that, that one of the measures of success in the, in the program would be the way it's being perceived. I can tell you that after having few conversation with the with East Jerusalemite uh, about the program, it's being perceived right now in, in mixed feelings, uh, mainly confusion, meaning the East Jerusalemite, the Palestinians of Jerusalem are asking themselves, why? Meaning, what happened now that after 50 years, all of a sudden, the government wakes up and decides to to invest in us? And I can tell you that when I do this analysis that I just uh, I just gave you and explain the issues, A, the political issue, and B, the, the, the economic issue, the fact that the government just cannot cannot stand this high percentage of poverty in the city, and also understand the economic uh, uh, potential of East Jerusalem and how much uh, uh, flourishing East Jerusalem can affect in, in a positive way uh, the economy of the city of Jerusalem and Israel in general, then there is an understanding to the motivation come, uh, standing behind this, uh, this program. But clearly, you know, I'm not sure... Do you think there's also a degree of uh, political ideology involved in there that you have a, a right-wing government that's, you know, very committed to this idea of united Jerusalem and, and uh, Jerusalem, the entire city as the capital? Um, do you think that ideology plays into the plan at all beyond the pragmatic concerns about the poverty level and um, infrastructure and and the way the city functions day to day. Yeah, and I think that maybe that can connect to, I mean, there were a bunch of different proposals from various uh, Knesset members for increasing the size of Jerusalem to include Maladumim or include uh, other neighborhoods from uh, Yuav Kish, from Zevelkin, various different proposals. So do they see this as part of maybe like a broader annexation plan as like the first step? It depends. It depends with the person that, that you talk to and also eventually the, the normal East Jerusalem is not asking himself only political questions, he's also asking himself practical questions. So the, the first question that I'm getting is how would it help me? How would it make my life easier? Then it goes into political question, and and that's very natural because let's admit it: if tomorrow you and I will hear that uh, our government uh, is going to invest significantly in our neighborhood, 
our first question will not be, okay, what's the motivation, what's politically stand behind it? The first question will be, okay, what, what's in it to me? And, and that's the first question that, that I guess the East Jerusalem might are, are asking themselves. Then clearly there are a lot of, uh, of political questions, and, and as I mentioned before, I'm not sure that a government that it does not have a, a very clear United Jerusalem uh, flag or ideology uh, would have brought this uh, program. This program is coming from a right-wing government because it, this government believes in the fact that Jerusalem should stay united. That does not mean that it did not get a, a, a very big applause also from the left-wing for other reasons. And clearly, when, when, when you're a leftist in Israel, even if you believe in that the, the future of, uh, of Jerusalem should be a divided city and, and the capital of, of two states, you still believe that, that the government, as long as Israel is controlling its Jerusalem, the government should invest as, as much as possible. So funny enough, this issue of Jerusalem is usually dividing the, 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 the political camp in Israel was actually a reason for, for a consensus in Israel when most of the camps, of course, each one with, with its own approach and angle, applause the government decision to invest in Jerusalem. I think it might be kind of, in a way, unsettling to Palestinians because, again, it doesn't address the the civil status issue. It doesn't address a pa- an easier path citizenship. So it, it may be like a long-term plan, but the status will have to change eventually for these for these Palestinians. This is an excellent question, and, and, and one of the things that we in, in the Jerusalem Institute are, are dealing the most with is the question of the civil status. And, and you rightfully said, you rightfully identified that this is, when I mentioned the five challenges, this is the only challenge that was not faced directly by this government resolution. However, interestingly enough, Zev Elkin, who is the Minister of Jerusalem and Heritage, and actually the, the brain behind this uh, this program he gave an interview to Nir Hassan in Haaretz a few a few days ago and was asked a similar question by by the reporter by Nir Hassan and he answered he said i believe that gradually most of the residents of east jerusalem would acquire the israeli citizenship this way or the other and i believe that the economic development now i'm not quoting him i'm just giving a more or less the, the spirit of what he said. He said that he believes that the economic prosperity that this program ho- hopefully would bring to East Jerusalem would also have a, a, a positive effect from his point of view in, in encouraging uh, East Jerusalemite to ask for Israeli citizenship. Now, he did not say if whether it's good or bad, because clearly uh, there is a big dispute within every Israeli political camp in the question, is it good or bad? that the East Jerusalemite would acquire Israeli citizenship. But he said that he thinks that just naturally it would happen because of economic development in East Jerusalem. Uh, this is a very important point. I hope I'm making myself clear. If not, I'll, I'll be more than happy to specify. Jumping off of your answer, you spoke about the possibility of uh, East Jerusalemites asking for citizenship, and you know that carries the implication of broader political participation there's been a movement lately um, for East Jerusalemites to participate in the upcoming municipal elections this year um, in defiance of the traditional boycott. 
And there are already, I believe, two Palestinian candidates running in the municipal elections, um, different platforms, different beliefs, and also um, it's not clear if they'll stay in the race uh, till the end. Do you think that this plan, this development plan, will impact the way the city's election plays out later this year and the way the participation of those Arab candidates um, will play out? No, and I'll tell you why. The government decision uh, will start being implemented in 2019. It was perceived today. So the the first budget year that is relevant for for this program is 2019. And we have to remember that the municipal election in Jerusalem will be held on October 30th, 2018, meaning a month or so before, sorry, two months or so before the government will only start implementing as and as you can imagine the implementation of this program will be very long so the benefits of these plans would not be felt in East Jerusalem before the election actually they would be felt long after the election I think that that when the question of whether or not the Palestinians of East Jerusalem would participate in the election for the Jerusalem municipality has to do with a much wider question of what's happening in between East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem and what's happened between East Jerusalem and the perception of Israel as their as their possible country of citizenship eh, rather than this specific government program. As you mentioned before, a poll that was done by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a Palestinian pollster showed that when asked 60%, 58%, that's the exact number, of, eh, of East Jerusalemite said that eh, they should go and vote in the election. Now, the way, if I understood correctly, the way the question was asked, and, and tomorrow we have a very interesting lecture by the people that did this uh, this, um, this poll, so I, I could be more accurate, but if I understood correctly, the question was not, are you going to vote, but do you think in general that East Jerusalemite should go to vote? And as I mentioned, 58% said, answer that the, the, the answer is yes. That's clearly, if this figure would be translated into 58% of the East Jerusalemite going to vote, that would have a major effect on the political landscape in Jerusalem and on the way East Jerusalem is being represented in the city council. We need to remember, when we're talking about a, a democracy, in the end of the day, the mayor of Jerusalem is waking up every morning and is getting 30 phone calls from the different members of the city council from different neighborhoods of Jerusalem, and each is asking him to do something for his part of, of the municipality, sorry, for his part of the city. He is not receiving any phone call from East Jerusalem. Now, whether it whether the, the, the mayor of Jerusalem is a saint, it's still hard for a politician to give this, the same attention to an area that is being represented by a city council member and to an area that is completely unrepresented. And that's why a good representation of the neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, of the Arab neighborhoods of Jerusalem, would have a major effect on the development of uh, this neighborhood by the municipality of Jerusalem. Now, having said that, clearly the political uh, situation in Jerusalem is always complicated, and it could be that a few days before the election, for all kind of political and security reasons, the East Jerusalemites would decide not to go to vote. 
I cannot predict, and, and all the experts that I'm talking from from the Arab sector of Jerusalem, from the Jewish sector of Jerusalem, that I'm talking to, none is ready to commit and pr- try and predict what would be the, the result. I'm not even sure if we'll have this phone call on the 29th of October, uh, meaning one day before the election, anyone would be able to predict. However, if the East Jerusalemite would go to vote, as I mentioned before, that would be a really a real earthquake in the political landscape of Jerusalem, and, and I think in a positive way, meaning it would really cause an increase in the investment in East Jerusalem. There are two neighborhoods in East Jerusalem that I believe are, are within the municipal boundaries, but they are on the other side of the security fence. Kafarake ben Shuafat, and they've become kind of a, a lawless area, not under Palestinian control and not receiving uh, Israeli uh, municipal services. Does this plan at all address uh, those those neighborhoods? So we're talking about two neighborhoods that today are very big neighborhoods. One is north of the Kalandia Airport that I mentioned earlier, and the other one is the Shuafat refugee camp not the Shuafat neighborhoods, those are two different neighborhoods, and they were both left outside of the security barrier when it was built in the early 2000s. Uh, the situation in these neighborhoods is not very easy. What happened well, in the last few years is that because of, of the housing prices in East Jerusalem, all kind of, uh, of contractors and, and basically gangs, took over the housing sector in those two neighborhoods and started building high-rising buildings illegally without the proper infrastructure and selling relatively cheap apartments to young couples from East Jerusalem that could not afford buying housing in East Jerusalem and bought apartments in these uh, neighborhoods. And today, because this two neighborhoods are outside of the security wall, the security fence, there is a, a big problem, a big challenge for the Israeli police to, to create a rule of law in these two neighborhoods. The question of whether or not the government decision will be implemented in, the, in, the, in these two neighborhoods, it's still open uh, to see. We had a few discussions about it and we didn't get a clear answer and, and, and I believe it has to do with the different agencies, meaning the agencies, governmental agencies that are already working well in these neighborhoods and unfortunately there are not many of these, will also implement their part of the problem in these neighborhoods. Clearly when it comes to employment, since most of the employment is inside Jerusalem, that would be easier. Other agencies that, are, that have difficulties working in these neighborhoods, then I'm very worried that it will be very hard for, for them to implement the, the budget that they would get in, in, in this program in these uh, two neighborhoods on the other side of the security barrier. I would just add one more thing about these two neighborhoods, which I find very interesting. When we mentioned before a few times the poll that says that 58% of East Jerusalem might think that East Jerusalem might should vote in the election. In these two neighborhoods, you got quite a high level of people saying they should vote, interestingly enough. Meaning, although these neighborhoods are, in a sense, separated, 
from Jerusalem, the people of this neighborhood, probably because they're suffering the most from, from the lack of representation in the city council, believed that they should go and vote in order to, to increase the investment of the municipality in their neighborhoods. So one last question, and stepping away from the more local issues and looking at this uh, from an American perspective and an international view, what does this development plan and any integration plan mean amid the controversy surrounding the relocation of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and the relocation of a couple of Latin American countries' embassies? We know that most countries, most international agencies reject um, any Israeli initiatives in the eastern section of the city, um, as well as declarations about the status of the city within Israel. Um, so, is there any international fallout um, from this? Could this be tied in with the potentially uh, soon to be released, if it's ever released, Trump peace plan? Um, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think that in that case, it's not different from what we spoke before, which was the reaction of the Israeli left wing to the to the program. And, and the reason for that is that. You need to be really heartless in order to reject a program that is basically aimed to improving the situation of the poor people of East Jerusalem. And even if, if you're a political party or a government that is opposing the Israeli control in East Jerusalem, which is, as you mentioned, uh, the, the majority of countries around the world, yet the fact that Israel decided to invest a major part of, uh, of the budget of government, sorry, an impressive amount of budget in people that are uh, suffering from poor way of life, poor infrastructure, uh, and in order to try and improve their, their lifestyle and, and improve their, their economic status, I think that, that that should be perceived very well by uh, the different countries. Clearly, people understand that the, the, the results of that could be that more and more East Jerusalemites would prefer to stay part of Israel in the in a final status agreement, and that's politically problematic. However, I still think that the personal question, meaning whether or not this, this program would help the status of the, of the single family in East Jerusalem is more important than the, the bigger political question, which clearly would be discussed once there is a final status agreement. Um, well, with that, we'll conclude. Uh, Lior, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're always very insightful on a very, very complicated uh, city with a lot of issues and... Uh, where a lot is always going on. So I'm sure we'll have you for, uh, for a third time. Yeah, do you, do you get an ice cream? Even you said that the third time you get an ice cream. Yeah, I know. Pap shlichit glida. But I, I don't know how well it, it translates. It sounds a bit weird over <laughs> Okay, so guys, you'll have to cut this, uh, this part. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thank you, Leo. Toda. And now we're going to preview this week's Koplau column, a weekly source of analysis on Israel, written by Israel Policy Forum's policy director, Michael Koplau, released every Thursday. Michael, what are you writing about for tomorrow? I'm writing this week about 
Hamas, Gaza, Israel's response to the rocket fire in the south, and comparing it to Israel's response to Iranian entrenchment in Syria, and thinking about how maybe there are some lessons from the way Israel has dealt with Syria for how it could be dealing with Gaza going forward. In Syria, Israel has been enormously successful in limiting Iranian weapons transfers to Hezbollah, and particularly in limiting Iran's presence in southern Syria and uh, upsetting their efforts to establish a permanent base there. Now, that has had two components. One component is a military one, where Israel has repeatedly struck Iranian targets, uh, Iranian bases, Iranian weapons convoys, and has not only been destroying Iranian infrastructure, but has also been going after Iranian commanders, IRGC commanders, drone operators, military personnel, and making sure that there really is no more Iranian presence in Syria uh, to speak of. Uh, and every time Iran tries to establish it, Israel goes and hits it. But the military component is not the only one. There's also been an equally important political and diplomatic campaign which preserves Israel's freedom to operate in Syria, but also demonstrates to Syrians that the Iranian presence there is not in their interest. And Israel has been doing this in a variety of ways, from working with groups that are not Iranian proxies, to setting up field hospitals, to very quietly supplying aid, and really sending the message that it is after Iran's military presence and not out to punish Syrians writ large. In Gaza, Israel now for a decade has had a purely military policy where it goes and it destroys Hamas targets and oftentimes kills many civilians as well, given that Hamas is embedded among the civilian population, but it has not had any type of political or diplomatic campaign that's twinned with that. And I think that the lessons from what Israel is doing now in Syria can and should be applied to Gaza going forward as a way to make sure that every two, three or four years, Israel does not get into a war with Hamas. You can read the Koplau column on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, where you can sign up for email updates and receive the Koplau column in your inbox every Thursday morning. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work online at www.israelpolicyforum.org and follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Telegram. Thanks for joining us.